0: Come with me in your Bible, please, to the book of Judges and chapter 7. Judges and chapter 7, and we read together only the first eight verses of that chapter. Then Jerubbaal who is Gideon and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Heron so that the host of Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to Proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down unto the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth in the water, With his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that bowed down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lappeth, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that left will I save and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go, every man unto his place. So the people took victuals in their hand and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, unto his tent and retained those 300 men. And the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. Turn with me if you will please in your hymn book and stand with me once more and sing number 714. Hmm. Awake, my drowsy soul, awake, and view the threatening scene. See how thy foes encamp around, And treason lurks within. Now is not this mortal life alone, These hostile powers of How canst thou hope? For future bliss. If their attempts prevail. Then to the work of God away, Behold thy master near. The various, tasks pursue. With vigor and with fear. The awful register goes on. The count will surely come. And opening day or closing night may bear me to my doom. Tremendous thought, how deep it strikes, yet like a dream it flies. Till God's own voice the slumbers chase from these deluded eyes. Thank you. Be seated. It's time to get Pitched. I have often taken the opportunity between chapters in our study of this book to bring occasional messages on different subjects. And I am quite ready to do that. I have some few messages that I have had on my heart for a while. But I could not be at liberty to do so. We have come now to this seventh chapter in this inspired record of God's dealings with his people under the rule of various judges. And in these chapters specifically, there is this record of one judge in particular, Gideon, the son of Joash. He was introduced to us in the sixth chapter, and we have followed with great interest his journey down to this hour of which we have read in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7. In my own heart, the sanctuary of my own heart, the privacy of my own heart, every time I come to this particular point in the timeline of Gideon's experience, and I allow my heart to just Pause at that timeline and view him there. An old song always forces itself onto my mind. And its words seem to me to captivate in lyric form the whole description of Gideon's standing here. Both in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, how graphically the old song seems to capture our dear brother Gideon. John Matthias, a Methodist preacher in New York, took up his pen in 1836 and he wrote these words. I saw a way traveler In tattered garments clad He was struggling up the mountain It seemed that he was sad His back was laden heavy His strength was almost gone Yet he shouted as he journeyed Deliverance will come then palms of victory, crowns of glory, palms of victory I shall wear. Surely this described the testimony of our pilgrim here in our text this morning. He's a wayworn worn traveler when we meet him in chapter 6. Tattered garments clad. We found out a week or so ago in a message that he was struggling up the mountain. Seemed he was sad. But an angel from God. God the angel had been watching him. And came to him and assured him. Deliverance will come. And when it comes, there'll be palms of victory, crowns of glory. Surely this describes the testimony of our pilgrim. And I can hope to do no more for you than to trace with you his steps on the way to those crowns of victory that he shall yet wear. As I approach this seventh chapter, I would concur with the words of an ancient commentator who said, this story as it unfolds is of too much value to lose even a single morsel. And by the grace of God, we. Together shall search so as not to lose a single morsel. The great and good Dr. John Gill has helped us with a brief but all inclusive summary of this chapter, which he does in his commentaries. Dr. Gill said in this chapter we have an account of the army under Gideon gathered out of several tribes, which from 32,000 were reduced to 300. And we are told by what means this was done, verse 1 through 8 that I read to you. And we're told how he was directed to go into the host of Midian, the Midianites, where he heard one of them telling his dream to his fellow, which greatly encouraged him to believe that he would succeed in verses 9 through 15. Also, Dr. Gill says we're told the form and manner in which he disposed of his little army to attack the Midianites and the orders he gave them to observe, which that large body which had the desired effect and issued in the total rout of that large body of people, verses 16. And then those that were destroyed were pursued by persons gathered out of several tribes. And the passages of Jordan were taken by the Ephraimites so that those that attempted their escape to their own country fell into the hands of Israel's judgment in verses 22, 3 through 25. And so Dr. Gill summarizes the content of this chapter. But then, even as we would trace the steps and recount the history of this most excellent servant of God, Gideon, we do well to heed to the warning of dear old Simeon when he said, We are so familiar with Scripture history that we cease to be struck with the most astonishing events. I pause in his comments there just to give a word of warning to you teachers, especially who teach year in and year out, over and over. And over, I would give you Simeon's admonition to your heart. We are so familiar with scripture history that we cease to be struck with the most astonishing events. Great events in profane history are handed down from generation to generation. And are made subjects of universal admiration, but those which are related in the Bible are passed over with a little notice. <laughs> How can we account for this? asked Simp. Is it that in the one the feats of men are seen, and in the other the feats of God? Is it that we are gratified with contemplating? whatever advances the glory of man, but we have no disposition to magnify and adore our God. I fear this is the true solution to the difficulty. But if we feel as we ought, we cannot be insensible to the display of God's power and goodness in the passage that we have just read. Indeed, the whole history of Gideon is so very curious and instructive that we cannot come away from it unchanged. Surely, we here at this church have found it so thus far in our tracing of his steps, have we not? May it yet be so as we follow him on in this seventh chapter. I have struggled greatly to find by what method I may best open to our hearts the contents of this chapter's record. And I find that nothing else will suffice but a thorough and faithful exposition. Verse by verse. And so it is by that method that I will pursue my task. In the closing text of chapter 6, we left off there seeing Gideon's faith further bolstered and animated by the miracles of the fleece and the deed. And then we saw gathered around him the tribes who responded to the trumpet, the call of arms in chapter 6 and verse 34. And we find them mustered. 32,000 in number we later see. And all having come to throw in their lot with Gideon, In the fight to rid Israel of her oppressors. It is now in time. It is now that harvest time, that harvest time of year when these evil idolaters shamelessly make their annual trek down into Canaan and plunder and pillage Unchallenged and unhindered, as was their custom to do. As chapter 7 opens, we find this marauding host pitched, in the words of chapter 6 and verse 33, we find them pitched in the valley of Jezreel. It seems of no small spiritual import to me. That when we come to the opening words of chapter 7, the exact same Hebrew word is used of God's army as was used of Midian's pitched. Chapter 7 and verse 1, Then Jerubba who is Gideon, And all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Haran. Now, I would like if you would, although it is not an incorrect translation, it is not the best. The word well is specifically in the Hebrew, the word spring. So when we turn to chapter 7 and verse 1, it opens up with this announcement that Gideon and all of those 32,000 that had nailed their coats, as it were, came with Gideon and pitched beside the spring of Haran so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Mori in the valley. It seems, as I said, of no small spiritual import to me that when we come to the opening words of this seventh chapter, the exact same Hebrew word, verb is used Of God's army as was used of man of Midianite. May we not in this, even in this, draw a lesson to our hearts today. And if I could give it to you in just a simple phrase, let the lines be drawn. Let the lines of this combat be clearly drawn. We learn later that Midian had amassed over 135,000 in troops. And that most historians say may or may not include, most say it does not include, the wives, hordes of camels, Servants and all the entourage that would attend them for this annual visitation across this land to reap, gather, and take away the fruits of God's people over a hundred and thirty-five thousand in troops have amassed, and here they are on the northern slopes, and Gideon had mustered not less than 32,000 by the springs of Haran. These are no inconsiderable assemblies. These are opposing armies clearly set in battle array. These are forces whose fatal clash is inevitable and unmistakably clear. There is no attempt at subterfuge. In a word, Gideon is not hiding his intent. His colors are, as they say in that expression, well and truly nailed to the mast. There is no design here to put his candle under a bushel. Matthew 5 and 14. If God is to be honored, if righteousness is to reign again, if God's people are to be delivered from bondage, then war must be raised. Truth must prevail Idolatry must be purged. Hmm. Can I say to you, grain may be threshed in secret in chapter 6 as long as bondage prevails. Caves and dens may serve their purpose if bondage suits their case. But if victory and righteousness are ever to reign, then war must be declared and that, in plain view, Israel must pitch in battle array. I hope you get where I'm going. Oh, how timely is this word to our hearts here today. We are living more and more under the oppressive hand of Midianite evil, lawlessness. Godlessness, pagan heathenism is parading in our streets and pillaging our homes and our churches and our institutions just as boldly and cavalier as Midian pillaged Israel. And if ever we are to see truth, reign again. If ever we are to see righteousness restored to our land, there must needs be a new commitment of God's people to come out of their caves of hiding and leave off our shifting and sulking and declare war on God's enemies again and pitch in public. You understand, I'm not talking about physical violence. You understand that. I'm talking about spiritual wickedness in high places, Ephesians 6 and verse 12. I'm talking about the people of God declaring openly, plainly, clearly, that they are pitched. In battle array against evil. The hour of compromise is over. The hour of silence is ended. The hour of sheepish toleration is done. The things that were set in motion in our parents' generation set in motion by modernism, set in motion by giant leaders like Billy Graham, all of that vast host of compromisers, the hour for that is done, and God's people today must pitch. It's time to be pitched. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Luke 9 and 23 and he said unto them all if any man will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it but whosoever shall Lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. I sometimes wonder when I read that verse, I can't help it. I sometimes wonder would he do a disservice to the scripture if I substituted the word job. Whosoever will save his job, shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his job for my sake, the same shall save it. Could be anything, could be anything. Verse 25, for what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words of him, shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his glory and his fathers and the holy angels. Compromise. Ashamed won't speak, won't pitch with God's people. Exodus chapter 32, you remember it well. It's a story you're familiar with, but I remind you of Simeon's admonition. Exodus chapter 32, take up the reading at verse 23. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. This is the scene, you know the scene. And as for this, Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. This is Israel standing guilty before God, guilty before Moses. And I said to them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. And when Moses saw the people were naked for Aaron, had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? It's time to pitch. Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him, and he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. The children of Levi did according to the word of Moses and they fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. What are you doing Moses? I'm going to pitch. Let every man that's on the Lord's side pitch with me. Oh, these are powerful words when we come to chapter 7. If you have the scene, have the scene in your mind. 32,000 little Israelites over here. Unarmed, by the way. Unarmed. 135,000 million Midianites ready to come in and take everything. And here they stand. And the the Lord directs Gideon in chapter 7, verse 1. We find out that they pitched. This ain't a secret operation going on. As I said, there's no effort at subterfuge here. They pitched. Oh, my beloved brothers, my beloved sisters, young and old alike, could I say to you that the days of our cowardly silence are ended. We stand now. Let our names be recorded in the halls of church history. As those who pitched. By the spring of Haran. Let our names go down in the annals of sacred history. As those who eschewed evil. In their generation. Job said it. In chapter 1 and verse 1. It said of him. That he eschewed evil. It went down in the annals of history that he was that man. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16 having good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ for it's better, it's better, it's better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well doing than for evil doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins and just of the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit. And I say to you, It's better, it's better, it's better if you're a saint this morning. If you're gonna suffer to suffer for well doing, pitch with God's people. Just go ahead and pitch publicly your tent in battle array. Oh, I won't take the time, you know it so well, too well, to share the testimony of those three Hebrew souls in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16. And while I will not read that account, I will give you their specific words, their testimony. When they pitched, they pitched against the king of the king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of their whole world. Here was their words. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter, if it be so. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. The form of his visage was changed. They pitched. <laughs> oh, there was no there was no possibility of subterfuge. They pitched. They nailed their colors. We're living in a generation of compromisers. And this world is more and more every day in your workplace, in your shopping place, in your living place, in your community, in your house. This world is more and more seeking to silence you and shut you down. It's time for us to be pitched. If I could, I would just press this truth home to your hearts today if in order to do that I'd leave from this pulpit and set yonder on an empty pew and yield this place to some more powerful voice from history and sit with you and listen as he thunders down on us all this grave conviction to pitch our tents in battle array in the cause of God and holiness. And so I shall do. Just such a voice was a mighty man, James Henry Thornwell who in the 1800s penned a sermon on which he inscribed at the top of every page, the the, the producers, the publishers of this re- republishing version that I have, they make the historical notation about this particular sermon that he preached, that on the heading of every single page in his original notes, At the heading of every page, he penned these words, the crisis, exclamation mark, the crisis, exclamation mark, the crisis, exclamation mark. All the pages were headed with these words, the crisis. And among other things, that great preacher had this to say, In the first place, addressing this crisis that he saw coming, in the first place we must shake off all apathy and become fully alive to the magnitude of the crisis. We must look the danger in the face and comprehend the real grandeur of the issue. We shall not not exert ourselves until we are sensible of the need for the effort. As long as we cherish a vague hope that help may come from abroad or that there's something in our past history or the genius of our institutions to protect us from from overthrow, we are hugging a fatal delusion to our bosoms. My dear brethren, I'm afraid there's a lot of folk in this country today as I preach that call themselves, proudly call themselves Christians, that are hugging to their bosoms a failed delusion that there will be no war, that there will be no danger. Says this great preacher, this apathy was the ruin of Greece at the time of the Macedonian invasion. This was the spell which Demosthenes labored so earnestly to break. The Athenian was as devoted as ever to his native city and the free institutions he inherited from his fathers, but somehow or other he could not believe that his country could be conquered. He read its safety in its ancient glory. He felt that it had a prescriptive right to live. He says our courage should rise higher than the danger. (laughs) And whatever may be the odds against us, we must solemnly resolve by God's blessings that we will not be conquered. When with a full knowledge of the danger we are brought to this point, we are in the way of deliverance. But until this point is reached, it is idle to count on success. It is further important that every man should be ready to work. It's no time to play the gentleman. Later on in that great sermon, he says this as we sit at his feet and listen to him preach. He said it is the relation to God and his providential training of the race that imparts true dignity to our struggle. And we must recognize ourselves as servants of God working out his glorious ends or we shall be infallibly be left to stumble on the dark mountains of error. Our trust in him must be the real spring of our resolution to conquer or to die. A sentiment of honor, a momentary enthusiasm may prompt and sustain spasmodic exertions of an extraordinary character, but a steady valor, a self-denying patriotism, protracted patience, a readiness to do and dare and suffer through a whole generation or a whole age if need be. This comes only from sublime faith in God. The worst symptom that any people can manifest is pride. Mm. Oh, Lord, give us preachers like this again. With nations, he says, as with individuals, pride goes before a fall. Let us guard against it. Let us rise to the true grandeur of our calling and go forth as servants of the Most High. In this spirit, we're safe. By this spirit, our principles are ennobled and our cause translated from earth to heaven. An overweening confidence in the righteousness of our cause as if that alone were sufficient to ensure our success betrays gross inattention to the divine dealings with communities and states heretofore. In the issue betwixt ourselves and our enemies, we must be free from blame. But listen, listen what he said. There may be, we must be free from blame, but there may be other respects in which we have provoked the judgments of heaven, and there may be other grounds on which God has controversy with us. Hence, it behooves us not only to have a righteous cause, but to be a righteous people. We must abandon all our sins and put ourselves heartily and earnestly on the side of providence. We must renounce all personal and selfish aims, and we must rebuke every custom or institution that tends to deprave our. Morals. Virtue is power and vice is weakness. Boy, that'd be a good that be a good motto for every young college-bound student to put a banner over the top of their bunk in their dormitory. Virtue is power and vice is weakness. in God's army it's time to be pitched oh may our God help us this morning one and all to pitch but could I just make one more observation in this text this first verse before we would move on next week And Jerubbaal, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the spring of Harod. <laughs> Hallelujah! They pitched beside the spring. Oh, listen to me. An army is going to need water. An army is going to need refreshment and God has pitched them right by the spring (laughs) oh I wish I had the time this morning to walk you through the scriptures to all the places that our God speaks of his wonderful water for his saints (laughs) warfare Makes a man thirsty. Oh, I hope you're making a spiritual application this morning. I'm not taking you by the hand. Warfare makes a man thirsty. He needs the springs. Psalm 23 He leads me beside still waters. Psalm 78 and verse 15, He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Oh, it's blessed to be pitched in God's army. We're pitched right by the spring. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 15, he is himself described in that way. the oh, the Psalm of Solomon said, a fountain, she's describing her beloved. She said he's a fountain of gardens, a well, hallelujah, of lively waters and streams from living. That's who he is. That's who he is. Oh, but the dear prophets, the prophets, they didn't want to be left out of it. So Jeremiah tells us, in uh, sorry, Isaiah. Isaiah tells us in chapter 35 and verse 3, strengthen ye the weak hands and Confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of the fearful heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing for him. In a wilderness shall waters break out. And streams in the desert, hallelujah! All oh, this army, this warfare—it may look bleak, my dear brethren. It may look bleak, and oh, thirty-two thousand against a hundred thirty-five thousand—it doesn't look good. But I'm telling you, we're camped beside a spring, hallelujah, and it's not over yet. Isaiah 55 verse 1. Oh, everyone that thirsteth. Oh, everyone that thirsteth. Come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come and buy. And eat, come. Yea, come. Buy wine and milk without money. Without price. Our brother referred in his prayer this morning to the amazing. What amazing it is. Amazing in our souls. We've been invited. Come and come. <laughs> oh, beside the waters. Beside the waters. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah in chapter 14 and verse 7. And it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. But it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. (laughs) Half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the under sea in summer and in winter it shall be. Oh, this is not a wet weather strain. This is not one that's going to dry up in summer. All these waters are going to flow. But it's not just the shadows. It's not just in the shadows and imagery of the Old Testament that we find this truth. Listen listen to our Lord as he speaks to that poor thirsty woman. In John chapter 4 he said to her, I will give you living water. And you will never thirst again. John 4 verse 11 through 15. Oh, (laughs) I'm just trying to get you to take it to your heart this morning that when you're pitched in God's army, He's pitched you by the spring. Revelation chapter 7 tells us all about it. Listen to this. Listen to our Lord as He speaks. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 13, the stars, sorry, chapter 7, verse 13, and one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which come out of great tribulation, have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Verse 17, we find out that the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water. And God shall wipe away all the tears of their eyes. Fountains, fountains of water, springs of water. All oh, just two verses in Revelation chapter 21, verse five and six. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And I said unto him, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Oh, but look at this. Even in heaven. Listen now. Even in heaven. Where we shall never more be weary. Where we shall never more pitch in a camp of warfare. Where we shall never more hunger or thirst. Even there, God has furnished a spring, a fountain of water. Revelation 22. I saw a pure river, a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In heaven, we won't even. Have any needs. No more war. But God has furnished a great spring. Of clear water. Coming out of the throne. Oh, my dear friend. This morning, can I just admonish you one final time. It's time to be pitched. And our God will see to it that there are springs of water for us. Turn with me if you will please. Your hymn book and stand with me. Again we will sing number 715. Ye servants of the Lord each in his office wait. With joy, obey his heavenly word. Watch before his gate. Ye servants of the Lord, each in his office wait. With joy obey his heavenly word and watch before his gate. Let all your lamps be bright Then trim the golden flame Gird up your loins as in its sight. For awful is his name Watch, tis your Lord's command And while we speak he's near Mark every signal of his hand and ready all appear O oh, happy servant he in such a posture found he shall his Lord with rapture see and be with honor (laughs) crowned